his story from growing up in Guatemala during a very violent time to becoming a university professor and doctor, how he responded to a brain tumor diagnosis, his five pillars of resilience, the lessons that his parents taught him in Guatemala that allowed him to be super successful as a businessman, and so much more coming right up. This is episode number 459 with executive coach, entrepreneur, and brain tumor survivor, Dr. Luis Velasquez. Hey, what's up, everybody, and welcome back to the Best You Podcast with me, your host, Nick Carrier. At Best You, we exist to help individuals who are hungry for growth get closer to the best version of themselves so that they can live meaningful and impactful lives. One way that we do this is through the 10-week transformation where we help people lose body fat, build muscle, and create healthy habits so that they can build maximal self-confidence in themselves. If you're interested in gaining motivation and having the accountability that you might need to build healthy habits, then go to nickcarrier.com slash 10WT to get started today. Again, nickcarrier.com slash 10WT to get started today. Today, I am really pumped to bring you guys Dr. Luis Velasquez. Luis was born and raised in Guatemala and Central America, and he's a brain tumor survivor and an avid endurance athlete. He has completed over 100 marathons and ultra marathons, some at the 100 mile range and nine Ironman triathlons. He's currently writing an upcoming book called Ordinary Resilience, Resilience, which is a blend of autobiography, research, and a how-to guide for overcoming fear, finding strength, undergoing change, finding passion, and building relationships. But before diving into the episode, be sure you're subscribing to the Best You Podcast on the Apple Podcast app, iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube. And make sure you share this episode with a friend or a family member while you're listening because they are going to be inspired by Dr. Luis Velasquez and his story and all of his lessons, especially the lessons that his parents taught him. I love these. But make sure you send them to nickcarrier.com slash podcast. And if you enjoy the show, then I'd love it if you leave a five-star rating and review. But without further ado, here's to getting closer and closer to your best you with the one and only Dr. Luis Velasquez. All right, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Best You Podcast. Today, we got a special interview. I'm super excited to be joined by the one and only Dr. Luis Velasquez. Dr. Luis Velasquez, just want to start off by saying thanks so much for joining me here this afternoon. Thank you so much for uh, inviting me. And um, uh, drop the doctor. I'm just Luis. (laughs) Okay, sounds good, Luis. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Well, uh, we were connected through... Uh, Dory Clark, who I recently had on the show, and I know that anybody that Dory recommends is is going to be has a lot of value to bring to the table. So I'm really excited to talk to you today. I'm, I want to kind of start off me personally. I, I wasn't able to get too much clarification on a lot of your story, so I want to get a little bit more clarification on your story and your background. I know you grew up in in Guatemala and in Central America, so talk to me a little bit about kind of when you about growing up and when you moved to the United States, and we'll start there. All right. So um, thank you. Um, uh, as I said, you know, thank you for um, um, asking me to be in this podcast. And uh, you will see that um, a, a lot of my story is is very emotional to me. So I might drop a one tear or, or, or one. I grew up in Guatemala in a time that it was very violent, political violence. And uh, uh, needless to say, you know, we were in, in extreme poverty. 
we will go to school and literally sometimes we would have, we would have to step over dead bodies because the violence there was, was very brutal. We're talking about, you know, the 80s, you know, when the, uh, uh, the communist and the capitalism were the Cold War, which was fought in Central America. So it was very, very uh, sad. What was very interesting for me, and I didn't know that until I came to the States, is that that was hard from the perspective of other people. But where I was, I had a very happy childhood. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It's like, I mean, wow. I, people will tell me, man, that must be very hard. And I, yeah, but I didn't feel it. You know, my, I really had a happy childhood. And I think that I owe it to, to my parents in terms that they were always given us the opportunity to dream. And one of their biggest question was, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to be when you grow up? So that gives me an opportunity to dream, you see what I'm saying, and to imagine things. And that is started to materialize, you know, when at the end of the world, obviously, you know, there were uh, the United States and Russia and wanted to um, uh, do some damage control for that matter. And the United States generated or created a scholarship fund for young individuals from those areas of conflict. And the idea was to bring them to the United States, give them education, you know, sell them on the idea of, uh, dem- you know, the democratic values or whatnot, and then go back to our countries and be beacons of light, of change. And that's exactly how I came here. Uh, I went back- Through a college scholarship. Yeah, I came on a scholarship. Through a scholarship. Through, uh, to go through a, to a community college. Okay. Uh, and so then, eight, eight, about 18 years old? I was, uh, I was 17. 17, kept. And, and I, what I was going to mention is that uh, my world at that time was as big as the next mountain that I had to cross to go somewhere else. I, I didn't know any better. And I think that that is one of the things that I learned that a lot of times we don't know what is possible because we don't know what is there. So when I came to the States, you know, I realized, oh my gosh, all the things that I could do personally. So at the end of the scholarship, you know, I realized, you know, I, I, well, I had to fulfill my commitment. I went back to Guatemala and I fulfilled my, my commitment to stay three years there. And then I decided I, I need to, I need to figure out a way to get back to the States or somewhere else, you know, and, uh, and, uh, and I think that I, Obviously, I couldn't afford it, so I went to uh, every single embassy in Guatemala to see if there were opportunities for students. And, and I got three scholarships, one for the United States, one for Australia, and one for Israel. The difference between all of those three is that in the United States, it was a full ride. It's literally a full ride. You know, they, they, will, they, will, they will pay for absolutely everything. The Australian one was great, but I had to pay my way to get there and insurance and I didn't have money. So I came to the States on a scholarship again uh, and I went to uh, Florida A&M University. And here is another part of my story is that I realized that since then, I've been working or trying to understand people that are different from me. So when I moved to Florida, you know, obviously, I don't know if you're familiar with Florida A&M University, it's a historically black university. And in my naive, you know, naive, you know, like, where are the white students? I was thinking when I arrived there, you know, and then I thought, 
oh, maybe right now, today is for black students to register and tomorrow is for white students to register. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the next day came and, you know, uh, it was the same. But it was it was an amazing experience, you know. And then I took I went I went to Florida State University as well, which is uh, uh, the same university right there. And I did my master's, and then I was recruited to do a PhD by Michigan State. So I went to Michigan State, and then my dream was to become a professor. He said, "I want to become a professor," which I did. I became a professor of fungal genetics at Michigan State University. So I got a PhD in uh, molecular biology and biochemistry. And then uh, I did a postdoc at Rice University and became a professor of fungal genetics at Michigan State. Then, as you can imagine, you know, sometimes we think that we have it all figured out. Then in the process, you know, I, you know, I, 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 we bought a, I bought a house, I got married, you know, and I thought that I had a mate. And then I was diagnosed with a brain tumor. When I came back from the from the brain tumor, you know, the surgery and everything else, the doctor told me, you know, you have to accept your new reality. And your new reality is that you probably won't be, you won't be back to work for a long time, you know. So basically, you know, you have to forget about being a professor for, you know, for a while. And you probably won't walk straight anymore. So that was a hundred marathons ago and several ultra marathons that I've run and Ironman triathlons. And I think that another principle for by which I live now is that I think that the world belongs not to the people that know the most, but to the people that learn the fastest. And mm. that's what I have learned to do is to learn is not people don't hire me for what I know or what I've been, but what I can do for them. So when they say doctor, it doesn't really matter to most people. You know, it's the, the, the doctor title is for me. I want to feel important. To, for you, it doesn't matter. For you is, can I help you? Mm. And uh, uh, yeah, so so I am. I now live in the San Francisco Bay Area. I'm married to a beautiful woman. We're raising two multicultural children. Uh, she's African American, uh, very successful, and uh, I'm 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 happy. And uh, I work with incredible people, you know. And uh, for some reason, I gotta say, I feel very grateful that people want to work with me. Uh, so here I am talking to you. Yeah. Thank you. This is a, that is an awesome story. Like I could not, I was so riveted by the entire thing. You do a really good job of telling it and, and hitting the important parts. I kind of want to go back to a couple kind of just questions. I'm curious about when you, when you first moved, had you learned English before you moved or, or did you have to learn that alongside kind of going to school? I actually know, you know, that, but it's funny, you know, when I was my uh, when I when I took my first job in Guatemala, you know, I work in a farm and I had to walk from the house to where I had to work. It was about, a, you know, maybe like half a mile through the woods. And so I walk and I was I will pretend that I knew English. So I will speak in gibberish flash, 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 <laughs> because I knew that now I knew that I was going to go somewhere. I had no idea where I, I, I had no idea what it looked like, but I knew that I was going to go somewhere. I was optimistic about that component. So when I came to the States, uh, I didn't know any English. So I, the first thing that I did is I went to a host family and, uh, and, and, and the host family was very gracious and incredibly use, uh, helpful to, to teach me. But one thing that I remember, there are two things that I remember. One time, the, 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 um, my host mother asked me to go and buy ice cream. 
And I was like, no, and I said, no, you need to go, you know, because I, she was forcing me to, you know, to, to use English. Uh, and I think that a lot of times we try to find our comfort zone and what makes us grow is feel uncomfortable. So that's one component. The other thing that, the other memory that I have is, you know, uh, as I was, you know, learning to read, uh, the teacher asked us to, you know, to find a book to read and do a book report. So I went to the library, I kid you not. I, picked a shelf random and I said to myself, I am going to pick the thickest book that I can find in that one. And I went and I, and I, and I picked, and, and I picked uh, uh, um, uh, The Count of Monte Cristo. It's wow. huge. I couldn't hold it. I had to put it in my chest to read it. But what I'm saying, uh, what I'm thinking is that the way I operate, but the way I think that it's been very, it has worked for me is that I go to extremes. I do things that are difficult. You know, I, uh, people say, you know, why do you do that? I said, pain is my friend, you know, kind of like, I, I know that I can, that I can do more than most people think that I can. That's awesome. So it sounds like a lot of that was probably due to how your parents raised you. You know, you said that your parents raised you guys to, to dream and to think about what you have the ability to accomplish. And that's what led to such a positive childhood for you guys. And that led you, you to be naturally optimistic person because you just had this, kind of unfound belief that you were going to be able to go somewhere and, and make something of yourself. You didn't know what that was going to look like, but for some reason that was deep-seated in you and, and very likely because of the way that your parents raised you. So tell me about, extract some of the things that they did to help kind of morph you into that kind of person that now maybe you try to do in your parenting with your kids. Uh, there, are, I, there are many things that they did, but I think that there are there are three things that my dad, my parents did. Number one is that they adapted. You know, we were always figured out, and we didn't have an option. You see what I'm saying? We had to, we had to figure out a way to do things. What, the other thing that, that, that we did, and I remember this, is that we, uh, we reframed things quite a bit. Mm. Uh, what I mean, reframe things quite a bit, is that we try to look at things that are bad in a, in a different, you know, in a different light. And I remember one of my first memories. My dad used to, um, to uh, he was a truck driver, so he would go for days at a time, you know, driving his truck. And I, I grew attached to him, so for me it was hard to let him go. So he invented a game, and he said, you know, let's play hide and seek. I hide and you seek. And so he will do that whenever he needed to leave and he will go. He said, what was interesting to me is that I knew that he was gone, but I kept looking for him the day after and the day after, the day after, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, so, so reframing things for me has been a very incredible coping mechanism. And, and so that's, that's the other thing. The other thing that my parents did is that uh, my dad was a spanker. You know, he spanked me, but he never spanked me for no reason. You see what I'm yeah. and, and it was one of those things that he will tell me, you know, tonight you're going to spank. So I had the whole day <laughs> to think about what I did. You know what I'm <laughs> and he never, they never told us not to do anything. You know, my dad, I remember, you know, a couple of my, my when, when, when my brother, uh, uh, my youngest brother was in his, you know, formative years and trying to figure out what he wanted to do with his life. He said, Daddy, I'm going to go to the States. I'm going to go. 
And the only way that he could come here is if he would come illegally, you know, because, you know, that, that's that's the way for him. That's the way for us. I am the only one that came with a visa and everything. Now it has, things have changed, you know, everybody comes here and, but that took a long time. But at that time, there is no way that he could come with a visa or anything. So he said, I'm gonna go illegally. And, and my dad said, okay, go. How much do you need? What do you need? And yeah, I don't know, it was equivalent to a thousand dollars or something like that. And my dad, you know, at that time, you know, he was already having his own business or whatnot, he gave me money. And he said, go. So he went, and I think that he went the first morning, and he went to the uh, the uh, the the um the Mexican frontier, you know, the border. And the next day, he came back, and he said, Daddy, I, I don't want to go anymore. So my dad said, okay, so what are you going to do about this? Then? What are you going to do? And so he said, I want to work with you, you know. So I said, no, you're not going to work with me. You're going to work on your own. So he gave me some help, and my brother now is one of the most successful businessmen of my time. But my point is that I think that my dad and my mom never put blocks for us to go somewhere. I'll give another example that I think that is relevant. You know, every time that I go back, I go visit the family of a really good friend of mine and he lives in Los Angeles. And one time I asked him, so why don't you go visit your parents more often? And she goes, well, every time I go there, my mom starts crying and I don't wanna, you know, I don't wanna break her heart. So when I went to visit her, she told me, I am so sad because he took off. He should have stayed here with us because even though we were poor, we would be together. Mm. You see what I'm saying? Even though we're like suffering, but we'll be together. My dad had a different idea. He said, you know, just go. Go find your, find your, your thing. And I think that a mm. lot of parents, especially in Latin America, that's the idea is that, you know, let's stay together. Let's suffer together. And my dad is like, no, I don't want you to suffer like I'm suffering. Go find your things. And, and you know, my, you know, my, my family, thank God, has been a model for, for me. You know, I'm, I am the least successful of, my, of, of the family. It's been, it's, been, it's been so inspirational to see them grow. Wow. That's so cool. I wrote down a number of things that you said there, the kind of four things. One, your y'all's ability to adapt, and we might be, get more into that here soon. Uh, but two, reframing things. I, I talk about that a decent amount. I think it's just so important to realize why bad situations can actually happen for you and not to you. And then you said, kind of what I wrote down, how I phrased it was accountability with reason. You know, he was a spanker, but it was never for no reason. It was for a specific reason. And so you learn from it. And then lastly, you talked about how your parents never held you back from doing anything. They always said, go. And they didn't go. And we're okay with you guys stepping into uncharted waters and getting out of your comfort zone because it's so easy to, for the people that you care for to hold, to kind of hold them back because you are scared for their safety and, and you can convince yourself it's the best thing to do to keep them safe, but it's really the worst thing that you can do from them because you're shackling them from the person that they could become. And so that's, that's great. Those were some awesome lessons that you uh, have learned and, and are hopefully applying as well as, as a father. I kind of want to dive in before, just to get more context before I ask the question, when, how old were you when that first, when the brain tumor, uh, you were diagnosed with a brain tumor? How old were you? I was at that time 33 years old. 33 years old. Was that before you had started doing the marathons, Ironmans, and stuff like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was before any of that? Yep. Wow. Okay, so let's talk about that then. You have done hundreds of races up to this point, and it was all after the brain tumor. Now, 
break down when that diagnosis came in, what was the process that you went through in your head that then sparked you to go do all of these crazy races? We'll be back to the interview in just a second, but first I wanted to share some words from a participant of the 10-week transformation. At Best Shoe, we started running the 10WT back in January of 2020 and have since had 313 people and counting go through it. They've seen their bodies get stronger than ever before, they've seen the stubborn fat finally come off, and they've seen their habits dramatically improve. And honestly, more than anything, they've seen their self-confidence skyrocket. If you want to learn more about the 10-week transformation, then you can go to nickcarrier.com slash 10WT. That's nickcarrier.com slash the number 10WT. We'll get back to the show in just a second, but first, here's what they had to say. Thanks, Maddie. Um, I joined Nick's 10-week program because I had a friend who'd been doing classes in the Orange Theory and really liked it. I was just looking for something to kind of kickstart myself back into working out. I lost 20 pounds. Um, definitely, I'm seeing a lot more muscle. Definitely just able to lift a lot bigger weights. Definitely the social aspect. Everyone's really fun. Um, I work night shifts, so like coming in after a hard shift, it's a nice like decompression and it's really fun. Nice. And lastly, just repeat after me, you should join Nick's 10-week program. You should join Nick's 10-week program. <laughs> I think that I think that what I see, I see things in, in buckets. I have a simple mind that I tend to bucket things, you know, and I see two things uh, on, on this component. This, you know, what I, one bucket that I call gravity problems, and the other that I call situational problems. And gravity problems are like gravity, you know, you cannot solve those. You cannot solve those problems at all. The situational problems are that you have control over, right? And, and, and I think that going back to how did I became the person that I am in terms of the races, uh, I didn't have an idea that I wanted to run a 100 mile race at, one, at that moment. You know, that wasn't even my radar. You know, my only purpose was to get better. Mm. You see what I'm saying? I just want to get better. So when I was uh, diagnosed and, and the doctor gave me those grim, you know, uh, news and the world started to collapse, you know, the wife left and, you know, all the things that I, that I mentioned. Well, actually, my wife left after I ran my first uh, marathon. And in fact, she ran, she ran it with me. So she was a great support at the beginning. And uh, how did I do that? I think that it goes back to the motivation. My motivation was to get better. I just want to get better. I just want to get better. And so everything that they told me to do, I will do it. The next, you know, the doctor, the, the therapist said, you have to, you know, you have to uh, walk in the morning and in the afternoon. I will work. I will walk the morning and the afternoon. <laughs> so I will do it. I'll do everything extra. And I think that I was on my wife, my ex-wife and I were invited to a wedding. Just the day, uh, the, the day that I was diagnosed. And, and the, the wedding was to, take, was to be taken in Chicago. And so we went to Chicago, you know, imagine, you know, I was just diagnosed. I was already thinking, oh my God, I'm gonna die. My wife was thinking, oh my God, he's gonna die. You know, what's gonna happen, blah, blah, blah. And, and so, but we decided to go to the wedding anyway. We already paid for it. So we went to the wedding. The next day was the Chicago Marathon. So I decided, you know, why don't we just go and do the Chicago Marathon? You know, I mean, uh, uh, see the Chicago, just watch, you know, watch the race. So we decided to go and watch the race. And then uh, 
something happened that day to me that I got inspired by all the runners that were, you know, crossing the finish line. And a lot of them had signs, brain tumor survivor, cancer survivor, domestic violence survivor. You know, there were like many survivors. And I was like, holy crap, I can do that too. So I said to my wife, you know, I want to do this. Next year, you and I are going to do it. And then she starts crying, you know, oh my God, you know, what are you thinking? You don't know if you're going to be alive next year. What, you should be thinking about the brain tumor. I said, no, no, I want to do this next year and you're going to do it with me. Let's do this. And then we shook hands. I said, okay, let's do it. So that became my motivation later. You see what I'm saying? When I was in the pit of, you know, the recovery, you know, I said, I have a marathon to run. So I started calling my recovery, my marathon journey. You see what I'm saying? And mm -hmm. I ran my first marathon in Chicago exactly just over a year after I was, I did my, you know, my, my brain surgery. From that, it became a slippery slope, you know, and then I, you know, I ran another marathon and another marathon and they became a source of, um, of, 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 of fulfillment for me. So now there is a dark side on that. And I'm telling you that what's happening because when uh, when, when I realized that I couldn't be a professor anymore and, uh, and when my marriage crumbled and uh, when I questioned my own identity, you know, and all of those things, the only thing that I could find solace in is running. You see what I'm saying? So, so I found running as a therapy for me, you know, the, uh, I, and I found running as a, as a way to recover and a way to recharge the races and everything else was just an outcome. I never focus on the races. I focus on the running itself. So that's what I've been doing all along. I don't know if the answer to the question is a long winded question. Yeah, no, that was, that was awesome. That was awesome. Very inspiring. I love how the day, the, essentially the day after your diagnosis, you saw the runners and you were inspired and, and then took action. Tell me a little bit about what kind of the, recovering process of having a brain tumor is like were you in and out of a hospital a decent amount getting treatment I'm, I'm not too familiar with what that process looks like yeah so uh so the first time that i real that i realized there was something wrong is because my my wife came into the house and said you know why is the tv so loud and i am like what do you mean it's loud it's not loud so yes it is loud you know and then she went and turned it off and then she said do you have a you have a hearing problem uh, and for a long time, she kept accusing me that I wasn't listening to her. The problem is that I wasn't hearing her. <laughs> so went to see the doctor. And at this time, I am in perfect shape, you know, shout, shape. I, I wasn't having any symptoms other than the hearing. And when, uh, when they went and they did, uh, the, the, the doctor told me, oh, you know, hearing is, is, is loss in the hearing is common for people that have genetic issues or are exposed to, um, problems of uh, loud noises or, or stuff like that. And none of them, that none of them has happened. So, and there was another potential reason was a brain tumor, but the doctor said, no, that's very rare. No, don't, I don't think so. Come back in six months. And then my ex-wife and I already had did some really heavy research the day before, you know, uh, why are the reasons of brain tumor? And we told the doctor, hey, do you think that is a the brain tumor? He said, no, I don't think so. And then, and then we said, well, can we make sure that that is not the case? Can you order an MRI? And he said, no. And we're like, okay, so we walk out, you know, and then this is something that I remember very vividly. My wife at the door came back and she said, you know, we need an MRI. Either you order from us 
or we'll find someone that will. And, and so he was like shocked, you know, because you know, I guess doctors in small towns, you know, don't expect patients to talk to them like that. So anyway, so he ordered the MRI and uh, that was on Tuesday. On Friday, uh, he called us, uh, the news. What was interesting is that the moment I knew that I had a brain tumor, all the symptoms became evident. I I've been having them alone, but I never associated them with brain tumor. Mm. And, and in my mind, I was allergies, you know, and, and I always pride myself, you know, I have a, I have a, I have a, what is it, what I, my, my threshold pain is, is higher, you know, so I can handle this, I, you know, it's fine. And then all of a sudden, knowing that I have a brain tumor, then, oh my gosh, you know, all of the things became much more evident. And, mm -hmm. and the, the biggest things that happened is that I started to, uh, my personality started to change. You know, I was more aggravated. I was, you know, like angry and all of those, all of those things. Um, after the diagnosis, because of the, after the, the brain surgery, uh, because of the location of the tumor, they have to go through my cerebellum, which controls the, the balance, you know, uh, the stability. And, and obviously, you know, they had to move things around there, you know, and they, they also took some of the, they took the tumor, but uh, they did some poking around. So I lost some cognitive issues, you know, cognitive faculties that thank God have recovered. Some have recovered fully, other ones, you still, if you give me your phone number, I, I, will, I will remember the first digit. So I'm a, I'm a writer, I have, I'm, I have to take notes, which is like a way to go. But yeah, and, and it affected me in different ways, uh, but that was very interesting and just incredibly uh, uh, humble. One of them is that I, that, that I remember this. I, I lost my ability to write and type, but I could read. Wow. So I had to learn how to write. I lost my ability to, uh, to voluntarily pee. So I, you know, for months I had to force myself, you know, to, to, to put a catheter in there to, to, to pee. The minute I pee on my own, that was, you have no idea how many, how much I cry. And now I, <laughs> I go to pee, man. I kill you not. I enjoy every drip of it because I know how it's like not to be able to do that. And so, so the recovery was, was long, you know, it was very long. And, 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 and mostly it's recovering the, the faculty uh, the cognition faculties, but also th there is another component of that is that completely erodes your identity, especially when you feel that you have reached a level of success. You know, you got your PhD, yeah. you know, you're a professor, and then all of a sudden you cannot do that anymore. It challenges your identity completely. And then in my case, you know, that I was, that, that a lot of times, you know, I was equating who I was with what I did. Mm. So now I separate those two things. Who I am is different from what I do. Yeah. So who I am is I, you know, I, I, if you ask me who I am, I'm a resilient individual and that's, that's, that's my, that's my card, you know, and, and what I do is, is, is the work that I do, you know, but, uh, and I think that at that moment, when I was in, in, that, in that moment, I was equating what I did with a being, and a sense of worth. And when I didn't have that, then my sense of worth started to decrease. And there were so many issues in there. So I think that mm -hmm. a lot of the work that I had to do was mental more than physical. And I think that a lot of times that's what people struggle with is the, is the, is the, is the mindset and the, 
and the stories that we tell ourselves that get in the way of achieving what we naturally can do easily. Yeah, no doubt. That last part is really key. So many of us find ourselves falling in the trap of identifying ourselves with what we do, or I'm a fitness trainer as well. And a lot of people I coach have weight loss goals. And oftentimes people tie their identity too much up in the number that pops up on the scale and they feel bad about themselves because of that number. But what I try to always tell people and remind people of is you are not the number on the scale, but your identity is formed from what you repeatedly do. And like you said, you you are a person of resilience. That is who you are. That's because you repeatedly do difficult things that get you out of your comfort zone, but you do them anyway and you overcome them. And so same thing with all of you guys listening. You are not your job. You are not how much money you make. You are not the number on the scale. Those are just simply outcomes. Those are the races that you shouldn't necessarily put all your focus on. We need to put a focus on the process and what we're repeatedly doing on a day in and day out basis. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And that's exactly how I believe and what I think. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. That's powerful. Um, the last thing I want to kind of touch on before before we wrap it up is we had talked beforehand how Dory connected us and you had mentioned how you originally were introduced to her by reading her book when you were trying to figure out like what you were doing with your life and, and what you wanted to do from a career standpoint moving forward and what your purpose was. Talk to us a little bit about your journey through trying to I'm assuming this was after brain tumor and trying to figure out what you're... So bring us through a little bit of your journey of trying to redefine what you were going to do from a work standpoint, a career standpoint, moving forward with your life and what allowed you to do that. Because there's a lot of people listening right now who are not liking what they're currently doing and they want to transform their career or they want to do something else, but they're not sure what the heck they should do. And and so I hope that they can learn a little bit through your process. How Dory show into my life and wh- how I took advantage of what uh, what I learned from her is that I could define my expertise. And, and she has a program, it's called the Recognized Expert. And the idea that uh, the, 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 what she, what I learned from her is that we all are experts at something. We just need to figure out what expertise is. And there are, the way I see it, there are three ways that you can actually become an expert. Number one is you do the research. Number two, you write about it and you interview people. <laughs> that's, that's, you get expertise of that. And number three is you are in the field living, living, living it. That I am the third kind. You see what I'm saying? And to tell you the truth, this idea of resilience, I had no idea what a mentor how it applied to me. I never, I never, I never thought of that, me as a resilient individual in the past. The way I describe this is as I was talking to Dory and she said to me, you know, I she said, you know, you're an expert or something. You try, let's figure out what it is. It happens that one time I I was sitting in a lunch with a very recognized author. His name is Jim Cusses. He wrote the book, The Leadership Challenge. And he and I, you know, started the conversation. And basically, he asked me the same questions that you asked me today, pretty much. And I told him the story. And he said, like, Luis, you need to write that down. You need to write that down. And I am like, I am, I'm not a writer, you know. No, you need to write it, write it. And it doesn't matter, you know. Like he said, you know, just write your stories. So 
I said, okay, you know, so I, you know, my, my uh, being the committed person that I am, you know, I decided to start writing my stories. So I wrote a bunch of them, but they were not connected in any way. It's just like, oh, this time when I did my first Ironman, or this time when I was in, you know, in training for my first uh, 100 mile race, you know, stuff like that, you know, or, or even, you know, my first memory, you know, and, and so I wrote all those stories and then I told him, you know, hey, listen, I, I, I finished writing the story. And then he, uh, he said, oh yeah, well, tell me about these stories. And uh, he said, obviously I won't be able to read them all, you know, but, you know, tell me about this story. So I told him, tell me about this story. I told him. Five files became evident. Yeah. And he said, Luis, that is your book. Mm. And I'm like, holy crap. And I realized that that's how I've been, I, I have been living my life. You know, those are the five things that I do that have allowed me to adapt and thrive. And that is my, what I call my resilience pillars. And, and, and for me, it's number one is, uh, is embrace the suck. You know, I, I, going back to, you're going back to what, what, what I said earlier, it's like a lot of times, you know, we think that we want to get better and we, we, we focus on the resources that we need to get there. Oh, if I only had, uh, you know, the money for the membership, or if I only had a better boss, or if I only had that, if I only had this. And I think that by doing that, we are not embracing the place where we are. And the reality is that where we are is where we're supposed to be, period, and we should be happy where we are. So that's number one. The other, the other, the other was about a pile that came is, uh, if you look at this, uh, look at my stories, you know, there is a lot of fear in many of them, you know, like living in violence, you know, in poverty, coming to the United States, you know, not in English, you know, all of us, there's a lot of fear in every single thing here. And then I realized that I was, my goal has never been to be fearless, but to fear less, but do it anyway. Mm -hmm. So throughout my stories, it's like, okay, oh my gosh, you know, I'm going to do this. What is the best, how can I, what is my low hanging fruit to get started? You see what I'm saying? And so it's not about not being afraid, but to fear less. So that's number two. The other component that I, that I, that I realized is that if I look at all the pivotal moments of my life, there has been one person there that has either helped me, pushed me, criticized me, left me. You know, there is always one person that has catalyzed. So I, I think that we are the product of our interactions. You know, I mean, and, 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 and so all of, many of these people have made an incredible difference in my life. So going back to, going back to my purpose now as a coach, is like, I want to be that person for as many people as I can. Yeah, so that's number three is, you know, build, you know, you cannot do life alone. Number four is uh, what I call, you know, the um, find your inner strength. And the way I see it is that everybody, I am in the place where I need to be, period. You know, I mean, it doesn't matter what I did. This is what I am. And it is nothing wrong with me, but I always have the, 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 the ability to get better. And I have everything that I need to take the first step. It doesn't matter what you want to do. You already have everything that you need to take the first step. So the key for me is to take the first step and get momentum. Once you start, then momentum takes care of itself. 
But having said that, you know, there are things that, you know, that, that, that we need to work on, you know, um, I call it like four to five. Uh, anyway, so that's one is that you have everything that you need to get started, but you still have to train and get better. You know, I, I call it my men, mental capacity, reading, learning, whatever, uh, spiritual capacity. I, you know, I always try to find reasons to be grateful for. Going back to your question, what made you smile today? I mean, what is nothing, what is not to smile about? And, 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 and also, you know, the uh, uh, find your inner strength, you know, you gotta, you gotta, you got to move. My wife tells me, go exercise because you're a better husband when you're tired. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and the reality is that it does, you know, I go exercise, I go run and I am in such a better mood, you know. So it changes my mentality. And the last part of the five elements is purpose. A lot of times going back to going back to what you said earlier about a lot of people focus on what they need to do versus who do they who they want to be. You know, I want to be a great father. I want to be the best manager for everybody. I want to be fit. You know, and that fitness is relative. But this is so. So anyway. So, so the five components is relationships, embracing the soft, facing your fears, finding your inner strength, and find your purpose. So all of that I have learned through this journey. And now that is part of my coaching practice. So I, I have a, what I call a resilient formula. And my resilient formula, the worst for me is commitment plus persistence times optimism. Mm. times optimism because optimism is a multiplier if mm. you don't have, if you're not optimistic because you don't see what is there then those are the people that you know that they, they're just doing it because they have to do it and you're checking the box it's uh, so yeah so i don't know so it's it's, it's yeah. been a great journey i'm still learning yeah that's awesome though that's awesome i think like the biggest one of the biggest takeaways that I even just got from that across your great five pillars is when you were trying to figure out what it is that you were going to do, you had to kind of dissect your own story and you had to dissect what got you to where you currently were and then and extract kind of your expertise out of that and then use that expertise in, in the service of others. So just want to acknowledge you for that. Before I ask the last question, I just want to acknowledge you for your ability to do the difficult things even when situations and circumstances don't present themselves in an ideal manner. And I think you've done an amazing job of that. Thank you. Thank you. And the thing that I want to clarify is that, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm writing this, finishing this book right now. And the premise of the book is the following. If we want to act differently, we need to think differently. And if we need to think, if in order for us to think differently, we need to see differently. So there is two, two or three sides of the story for everything. What we need to do is figure out what side motivates us and what side is going to not motivate us to move forward. Yeah, yeah, that's good. And, and yeah, so it's, uh, what I've seen a lot of times is that people that feel that they don't have a choice, when you reframe things for them, they see that they have a choice and man, the possibilities open. Oh yeah, no doubt. That's 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 great. Like you said, your actions are based off of kind of your thoughts and which are based off of your what you see or your perspective and that's so important to be able to kind of reverse engineer that so that's great uh well i know everybody's going to want to learn about that book when it comes out ordinary resilience right that's the key 
Awesome. Awesome. Well, we'll make sure that uh, people get notified about that. I'll make sure I share about it when it, when it does come out and everything like that. Also, you guys can go uh, look up Luis's website at VelasCoaching.com, and I'll have that linked up in the show notes as well. Um, but Luis, last question here is that I think getting closer to the best version of yourself is a constant journey. I don't think that we actually ever get to that best version, and I also think it's a unique journey. I think the way that I'm going to get closer to the best version of myself is going to be a little bit different than the way that you get closer to the best version of yourself. So this last question is for you personally. If there are three things that you could currently do or three things that you could currently work on to get closer to that best version of Luis Velasquez that you could possibly be, then what are those three things that you could currently do or currently work on? That's a lovely question. I wasn't prepared for that question. So what I, <laughs> that I, need to, I think that I need to um, let go of my fear of being wrong. Mm. And, 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 and that's holding me uh, quite a bit. Uh, uh, and I think that I need, to, I need to work on that. I need to redefine my, my risk limit. Uh, uh, because I, right now, you know, I, I, I am cruising, you know, thank God life is, life is good for me. You know, I mean, work is great, you know, family is awesome, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm almost seeing myself going to pre, pre-diagnose. And, and so I need, I think that, you know, you, you ask a very interesting question here. What is it that I need to do right now to disrupt myself and to, mm. to, to elevate my performance without going through the brain tumor again? <laughs> right. So, so that's number two. And number three, I think that I need to, um, I need to figure out a way to, 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 reach, to reach out to more people, to reach more people. So if you think about this, you know, the three things that I mentioned are, are driven by what I consider my fulfillment, uh, uh, my purpose is to reframe things for as many people as I can. Mm, that is good. That's a good purpose statement right there. Reframe things for as many people as you can. That's solid. Well, those were three really good things. I, I love the redefine your risk limit. I think so many of us can sometimes slip into like just kind of what you're doing and slip into the rhythm of things, but you got to redefine that risk limit. You got to redefine what area of discomfort you're going to step into next. But Luis, that was amazing. Learning more about your story was super inspiring for you to be able to move to the United States at the age of 17 without having spoken English and make a name for yourself and then get, and then come back and, and then still find a way to get back to the United States and then overcome the brain tumor and, and do all these races and have the resilience that you have had the ability to have and adapt the way that you've been able to adapt is just so inspiring. So I know everybody was really inspired as well. I'm looking forward to your book, Ordinary Resilience, and I know that everybody will look forward to hear when it comes out as well. But Luis, that's all we got today. Really appreciate your time. Thank you, Nick. I really appreciate the opportunity. What an inspiring interview with Luis. I mean, I truly thought his story of childhood and the lessons that he learned from his parents were super inspiring. Be sure you share this episode with a friend or family member who would also be inspired by it. All you have to do is maybe send it to somebody who's going through a rough time. This could be the thing that helps them actually get dig themselves out of the hole that they're in. And remember, the world belongs to not people who know the most, but people who can learn the fastest. I mean, such a powerful insight, right? The world doesn't belong to people who know the most. It belongs to people who can learn the fastest. That is such an empowering thing to realize. 
And I loved his four big lessons that his parents taught him. Adapt, reframe, accountability with reason, and go after your dreams. It's so important to remember those for yourself and to also transfer those to people that we lead. So for now, it's time. It's time to embrace the suck, to not try and be fearless, but to fear less and do it anyway. It's time to form great relationships, define your inner strength, and discover your purpose because that is what will allow you to continue to get closer and closer to your best you.